1: Hey, before we get started,
2: uh, it's Max, and we have some announcements to make. We're doing some live shows. Sitting here with Evan Ratliff. When is your live show?
3: My live show is November 15th in San Francisco at the Swedish American Hall. I will be interviewing Kara Swisher live on stage. You know Kara Swisher, but... In case you don't, she is the founder of Recode. She is also a longtime technology journalist. She knows more than anyone about Silicon Valley and the power dynamics therein. And we'll be talking about all of that and more. Now, what about you, Max?
2: Yeah, Bay Area people come to that. I'm going to be there too. I'll just be sitting in the audience quietly. Come say hi. A few days before that, Sunday, November 12th, I will be in Chicago interviewing This American Life's Zoe Chase. Zoe uh, does all their politics reporting. She's also the best. Uh, The show is part of this thing called The Fest, which is being done by the Third Coast Audio Festival. Three o'clock, The Hideout. Tickets for both the Chicago and San Francisco live shows are uh, in the show notes. And I'm going
4: to do one that's even better than both of those. Though I have not booked the guest, and I don't know where
2: it will be, it'll probably be in New York sometime in the winter. So to review: yeah, Chicago, November Sunday, November twelfth; San Francisco, Wednesday, November fifteenth; New York, TBD. Yeah, but TBD. the best, but the gonna be the best one. But also, the, yeah, the best. Yeah. Yeah. But go
4: go to those ones so you'll so you'll know what quality really is when I deliver it.
3: <laughs> Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky, Aaron Lammer. Wow. Some different, uh, different cadence.
4: <laughs> He's
2: trying to bring you guys in. Yeah. And, I feel like but, you guys, uh, Aaron said my name wrong last week. Yeah. Now I'm Max Linsky. Still,
4: still at it, still at it. Uh, who's on the show this week?
3: Uh, this week I talked to Sarah Ellison. She is the special correspondent for Vanity Fair. She's written a lot about the media in the past, whether a television, newspaper. She's probably one of the world's most experts on uh Rupert Murdoch in the Wall Street Journal. And she more recently has started writing about the Trump administration from a variety of angles. And uh, that's part of what I wanted to talk to her about.
2: Excited for this one. Long time coming.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been,
4: been trying to make it happen for a while. Got to get Graydon Carter on the show before. Uh, I'm just going to put out an open call there. We're trying to get Graydon Carter to come on the show uh, before or in the midst of his
3: retirement uh, from Vanity Fair. So. Have any of your open calls ever resulted in a guest it, that's a on the good, show?
4: That's a good question. I do say come on the show a lot, but I very rarely uh, follow up on it. Probably odds are that it, at least once it's worked, but. Maybe we can uh, send us an email if you uh, have been charting, <laughs> charting my uh,
2: saying, "Come on the show, on the show." Speaking of intro corrections, someone did tweet out us. Remember, we had that whole conversation about if anyone with a PhD had been on the show. Oh yeah, <laughs> and Helen Peterson, PhD. Yeah, and Su, PhD. Okay, probably more, probably more than that. <laughs> Those are the only people that. Yeah. You're know, just come- making it worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just apologize to the doctors. That's all.
4: Any uh, any other fake news that we've been propagating on this show?
2: <laughs> Tell me something real, man. Tell me one real thing.
4: Uh, here's one real thing. MailChimp's the best way to send email. They sponsor this show. It makes this show possible. Thank you, MailChimp.
2: Now here's Evan with Sarah Ellison. Sarah Ellison, welcome to the Long Form
3: Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. Thank
3: you for coming. There's so much to talk about because I think you are really in the news cycle in terms of what you report on, Mm -hmm. different aspects of what you report on. And I kind of wanted to start by talking about how you exist in that news cycle, writing for a monthly magazine, because that to me is an area of deep fascination, how you manage that. So first, we should say, you're What's your official title? Staff writer. Or I'm correspondent? a special
0: correspondent. Special correspondent. Fairy. Yeah, I've just upgraded from something else, so I'm I'm now special, um, <laughs> which feels really really exciting. And um, part of the reason why they did that is that I actually have agreed to not just write for the monthly magazine. I'm now contributing to um, a digital site that we have that produces a lot more stuff, a lot more frequently. The
3: Hive. The Hive. I've mm-hmm. seen. Yeah, I've seen yeah. a lot of pieces up there.
0: And the idea there is just, this is a kind of time where we often have bits of news or things that we know that can come out or should be able to come out more immediately than what exists on a monthly news cycle. And what when you say you're like super fascinated by that, I was going to say that it's like a super anxiety producing thing to try yes. to have something that you're going to write about that is true today and will also be true in six weeks. What is that? Um, and I think that there's a real art to it. And I can't pretend to have totally figured it out. But there's also a real benefit to it, mm. I
3: think. Oh, well, I want to hear about that. I, I think I was closer to saying that would make me insane is yeah. really what I meant by fascinated. Because like you, let's take, for example, you recently had this story about Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Right. And I could imagine that, first of all, it was in the magazine. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it appears online as well, mm-hmm. that there's constantly a concern that in between that closing time and when it comes out, The first problem is that everything could change or something major could change. So I was trying to go back and look at it and see, do you write around that problem somehow? Or do you just kind of go with what you have and then just cross your fingers?
0: I mean, in that case, Steve Bannon was very much on the ropes. Mm -hmm. Steve Bannon was sort of constantly on the ropes ever since he's been, as have been a number of different people um, in that administration. And the last time I had really done a deep dive into the West Wing was for our April issue, and it was just about the West Wing dynamic. And so I was very familiar with how much one day someone's up, the next day someone's down. everybodys It's like a circular firing squad. Everyone's blaming somebody else for what's going wrong. They're sort of secretly always blaming their boss, but they don't really want to say that. And so what we do, just to answer your question really specifically, is... You know that certain things are going to change. In that particular instance, you know that Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner have been kind of rivals and frenemies at their best moments for a long time. And that dynamic exists, and you kind of know that maybe Bannon is going to be out by the time the story actually gets into the magazine. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was the case with this, but we definitely realized that that was a possibility and sort of opened up a few kind of, you know, open ended questions about his future. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, it's like, oh, that might change in a minute, but that's also been true sort of forever. So there's a real be- I And mean, When I talk about the benefit, it's yeah. sort of everyone who's covering anything about this president has his or her head on a swivel. You're like, oh, my God, Jeff Sessions is going to be fired. Oh, my God, John Kelly's going to be fired. Oh, my God, what's going to happen next? Maybe maybe Robert Mueller's just going to come out and bring everybody down tomorrow. We've been saying that for a really long time. You know, on a given day, there might be one thing that's kind of new. But when you settle back down, you realize that there are some deep truths that kind of stick with you the whole time.
3: Well, the sort of second part of it to me is that there's obviously a challenge of finding sources in any of these stories and getting people to talk. Mm. And we had Maggie Haberman in, and she sort of talked about her methodology and yeah. how that all works. But I would assume that part of the reason that people are willing to talk to you is that they want something out there. Like, mm-hmm. they, they want their story out there. I mean, in fact, that was a theme of that April story, right, 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 that right, everyone's right, right, right. out in the press trying to yep. set up their brand. Yep. And so then does it impede that the transactions – the I don't know if it's the right word, but that that motivation, yeah. the fact that you might say to them, OK, I'm gathering, I'm trying to tell this story in a deeper way. Mm-hmm. What you tell me is not necessarily going to show up on the Internet tomorrow.
0: Yeah, sometimes that can be a real benefit. And sometimes, again, that's the advantage of having a website where you decide, OK, this needs to come out now because it's going to come out now in one of five other publications if we don't do it right away. There is a real transactional nature. Obviously, any journalist would be kidding themselves if they think that, you know, Well, they're just talking to me because I'm such a great shrink or that they, like, love me. So there is a kind of source management quality to writing where you're sort of – people want something out. They want to weigh in on something. It's a thing of the moment, and you can do that quickly. I think that there is also a real benefit to telling somebody, like, I'm not going to be in that scrum. I'm not going to do – these short hit pieces. What I'm interested in is like the thirty thousand foot view. It was whatever gets people sort of talking. It depends. You have to kind of know your source in a certain way and what their motivations are. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there are they have lots of reasons to talk because they're talking a lot in yes. this in this particular White <laughs> House. It does seem like <laughs> it.
3: But I still wondered, seeing you on Twitter, you're not a, like a no, huge Twitter, Twitter a person, Twitter but person. and you know, looking at Vanity Fair. Like, you're not taking a position of sort of newspaper-like objectivity. Like, I feel that it's safe for me to say, correct me if I'm wrong, that you have serious, serious problems with Donald Trump, our president, (laughs) that you voice, both in stories Mm -hmm. and, I mean, obviously, like, Graydon Carter. Graydon has sort of set the tone. So these people who are insiders in that world, the Trump world, Mm -hmm. uh, whether in the administration or, you know, fans or supporters of the administration— they would know that about you. So how do you still get them to talk to you?
0: Well, I don't actually really know the answer to that question, but I think it is that I give people their say. I let people get their perspective across even if they're going to be things in the story that they're not going to like. And Donald Trump's, I mean, the other thing that I've said to people on the phone is they say, well, you know, Graydon Carter really has a problem with Donald Trump. I'm like, well, Donald Trump really has a problem with the media. So your boss has trashed me more than mine has trashed you. So let's just kind of put that on the table and say, let's try to do this job together. I have some questions. Why don't you tell me the answers? Mm -hmm. I also think that people want to distance themselves in some ways from the government's, this government is smaller because they haven't filled all the positions or lots of positions are still open. But there are plenty of people to blame for things going wrong. And I think that one of the things that motivates people a little bit is to say, it's not my fault that this happened. It's somebody else's. That's the less elevated way of thinking about it. And I I think that otherwise, people want to tell their stories. I mean, some people don't. But this administration, if nothing else, is interested in what the media has to say about it. You know they they want to weigh in. They want to make sure they're not getting unfairly depicted. Um, I had a conversation with somebody recently. I did a story on the administration. Somebody in the administration and somebody called me. And they said, "Well, if you would have told me it was going to be exactly like that, I would have told you more about what this was going to be." I was like, "Okay, well, let's do it now. Like next <laughs> yeah. time, let's go for it." I mean, I just think it's a funny time for the country because there is this conversations going on between the media and the White House that is codependent and a little screwed up, but makes for a good story.
3: Well, we've sort of, we've started talking a lot about Trump and your coverage of the Trump mm-hmm. administration here, partly because every conversation goes there anyway, totally. so why not just start there? But you've also, I wouldn't say that in the past for Vanity Fair, even before that, you were, strictly speaking, a political not reporter. No. So you've covered media a, a lot, lot. Yep. And really gotten deep inside media stories. What has made you want to focus and do these stories?
0: Well, You're right that I, for a long time, have written about the media. And, you know, one of the big stories that I covered is Rupert Murdoch, Mm -hmm. who has always been a kind of blend of media and politics, always had his own kind of political views and opinions and attempts to influence politicians in other countries. And he's tried to do it here, but he's found his person in Donald Trump. So that was definitely my kind of Perspective, and I started to dip into some more kind of national security and political reporting when WikiLeaks started. Right, you and, did a big you know, Julian Assange I a big piece. Big Julian Assange piece, and was, uh, that started in 2010 when I was writing about the Guardian newspaper, which is involved in the State Department cables, and so was the New York Times. But this is such a media-driven presidency and such a media-driven group of people that, you know, particularly Donald Trump has you know, a great interest in what the media thinks of him. So does Ivanka Trump. And so the way that they present themselves and the people who knew them, I mean, these are not people who political reporters really Knew that mm-hmm. well. I mean, one of the, one of Maggie's great strengths is that she was a tabloid reporter, mm-hmm. and so she's known Trump for a long time. Right. And a lot of the people who are in in the daily grind of White House reporting did start out in the tabloid world. I mean, I remember the first story that I sort of started to write specifically about Trump was this notion that specifically Jared Kushner had talked to people about what would it look like if you were going to launch a media organization that addressed people directly and went around. Even what Fox News, I mean, the line was, "We've identified something in the campaign that even Fox News hadn't identi- hasn't identified." Was like was Trump, true. Trump TV.
3: That was that, the whole Trump TV and like, thing. He sort of almost predicated on if he lost, his real gambit was he really wanted to set up this media.
0: Company. Yeah, I mean, and I think that what it was a situation where there was this recognition that they had tapped into you know his rallies and his sort of speeches had tapped into something that no one took seriously and you didn't need to rely on these media figures to grant you any kind of credibility you could mm-hmm. just take it for yourself and that was a kind of kushner driven Exploratory bit of conversations. But I think that what's so funny about that is I think that, like, we are in Trump TV and he won. So it's kind of like a both are true. Um, But that's how I sort of started. And it was definitely like the slow kind of recognition that this world of Manhattan media elite or, you know, Trump being a constant source of tabloid fodder, it was all going to converge in Washington in a way that. Maybe some people saw that I certainly didn't see, but I found myself kind of pretty well positioned to cover it, maybe even as well as or at least having a fighting chance with people who've been covering traditional Washington their whole careers.
3: Yeah. And do you think, are there insights from covering, I want to go a little deeper in, in a bit into, you know, the Wall Street Journal book and like covering inside of big media organizations and people like Rupert Murdoch. But do you think there were specific things about those type of people, these sort of powerful people in media that then translated well into the way that the White House is being run, that is is basically being run like something in between like a circus and like a reality TV show?
0: I think it's just a group of people who are used to having their social circle be, and their quote-unquote friends, be other slightly famous people. Mm. We're all kind of learning now how Trump manages this White House, and it's more like a family business than it is anything else. But when you cover Jared and Ivanka, you realize that they have a circle of friends and people that you've kind of interacted with before in different ways. I've done reporting in London, and you realize, like, you just need to know six people because they, the rest of the country just, like, f- like, funnels through all of them because it's all sort of the same weird world at the top of certain silos. ¶¶
5: Hey, it's Max. I um, have a cold, and I also have a message to bring you from our sponsors. Here's something I think you should chew on. Many recent studies suggest that having good oral health impacts your overall health, yet most of us don't brush our teeth properly. You can start brushing better today with Quip. I have started using Quip. It's a uh, new company that's refreshing the way people brush their teeth. They've got these fantastic electric toothbrushes that pack premium vibration and timer features into an ultra-slim design that's half the cost of bulkier brushes. I have been using Quip. It has made brushing my teeth a delight. It's uh, just a little thing. It's not some huge, bulky, motorized thing that you have to keep on a charger. It just uh, works. Every night. It looks sleek and it uh, gives you a great clean. It's basically like Apple designed a toothbrush. But without the big price tag, you can even subscribe to receive new brush heads on a dentist-recommended three-month plan for just $5, including free shipping. You have to see it and brush with it yourself. Quip is backed by leading dentists and was named one of Time Magazine's Best Inventions of 2016. Plus, they even won a 2016 Grooming Award and made it on Oprah's 2017 New Year's O-List. I'm telling you, it's, uh, it's a hell of a toothbrush. I don't know what else to tell you. I, I have been using it. Uh, My teeth are sparkly, and uh, and I just feel great about it. I feel great about Quip. Right now, you can feel great about Quip. Go to getquip.com slash longform, and you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. Again, that's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash longform. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Thanks also to uh, BarkBox for sponsoring the show this week. BarkBox is a uh, delivery service. They'll send you four to six natural treats and super fun toys curated around a surprise theme each month for your dog. And for your dog, I can tell you, BarkBox is, uh, it's so exciting when BarkBox shows up. Here's why. I have a dog. Her name is Reba. Uh, She is lovable. She is a little tubbly. And uh, Reba gets very excited every time the doorbell rings. And it's never for Reba, except when BarkBox shows up. It's for Reebs. Put it down on the living room, open it up, and it's just like a wonderland of treats and toys. She always loves what's in there. It's different every time. And uh, it's just the best. I think it is actually like the best part of Reba's month is when Barked Box shows up. Let me tell you a little bit about what makes her so happy. First off, the uh, treats are delicious. They're all made in America and Canada, and 100% of them are tested on their own animals. So you know it's going to be super safe and super delicious. It's different every month. If you find something that your dog loves, you can just go to BarkShop.com or their app, or you can just text them, and they will tell you where to find it. And uh, if your dog happens to not love something in the box, that's cool too. Just let them know. They'll send you something else, because all these folks care about is dog happiness. You should try BarkBox. Go to uh, barkbox.com slash longform. You're going to get a free extra month when you subscribe to a six or 12 month plan. Again, that's barkbox.com slash longform. Make your dog happy. Make yourself happy. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to Evan and Sarah.
3: While we're on Trump, I want to talk about an adjacent issue, which is we're in the middle of the Weinstein revelations. We're not even in the middle of them. It's been a week so far. Um, A week, week. two weeks? Thursday
0: was when the Times story came out, so it was a week before last.
3: Wow. Um, And I wanted to ask you about it partly because I feel like you wrote about Roger Ailes Mm -hmm. and sort of what was happening inside of Fox when the Roger Ailes uh, Mm -hmm. revelations came out. Mm -hmm. And it seems like... We're sort of seeing the same thing play out, although with sort of much swifter consequences for the perpetrator.
0: Yeah, we're seeing actually much less resistance from Weinstein and the people around him than we did with Ailes. There was a really concentrated effort to protect Roger and to malign the women who accused him of sexual harassment in a way that was sort of maybe true for Harvey over the years. But the distance between the story and his resignation was so much faster than with Ailes.
3: It feels to me like there are these sort of like three huge figures that have been accused of these things in the Mm -hmm. last, you know, Mm -hmm. year. And like one of them is president of the United States and one of them was forced out but got a huge payment and Mm -hmm. then like passed away. Mm -hmm. And then all the vitriol can be directed at this one person. Right. Not undeserving. He's not undeserving of it. I mean,
0: yeah, it's interesting because there are these three huge figures, as you pointed out. We're all in Harvey mode right now. And I think that this is the right moment to analyze what happened there and like try to figure out who were the enablers. What did the company put into the contract? What was Cy Vance doing when he didn't bring you know, press charges? Um, what actually happened with that? Because that's how you, you learn about, about a specific situation and you can draw a lot of conclusions about the way people handle these things in general. But what struck me about the Harvey story is that everybody's now so woke about sexual harassment and women are coming forward. Men are also voicing lots and lots of sympathy for these women. And like, if I had known, I would have stood up. But what you have and what I remember very clearly from the Ailes thing, which is now just a year ago, that it's not just that women were getting blacklisted in the 90s for coming out and accusing somebody of sexual harassment. It's like they were getting blacklisted as of last year Mm -hmm. coming out and accusing Roger Ailes of sexual harassment or Bill O'Reilly of sexual harassment. I should have added a fourth. Yeah, I mean, he's... there's
3: Fourth to the Mount Rushmore of... <laughs>
0: exactly. Um, and I think that the thing that's interesting to me about Trump and everybody sort of is now turning their gaze, like, be, you know, beginning to turn their gaze on, like, what's going to happen to Donald Trump? We know of women who came out during the campaign. Lots of women came out and talked about how he had groped them or sexually harassed them he denied everything. Then there was the Billy Bush tape. It was just a very kind of mind bending thing for not only women, but especially women and then the entire country. But there are still people who are scared to come out with their stories about Donald Trump because they're terrified of the repercussions. That tells you something about how, you know, we've come some way in this discussion, but there are um, an accused sexual harasser Uh, who's sitting in the White House.
3: Mm -hmm. So let's talk about it a little bit from a reporting perspective because you've covered a lot of powerful people, powerful men. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if, do you have a sort of like people that you can't quite report out or that you've at least been aware of that are sort of floating around?
0: I would say that there are people who, um, somebody say, oh yeah, he's such a dog, you know, like in casual conversation. And what does that mean? Is it, you know, I've done a little bit of reporting on this, on the Harvey um, what people knew and what people in Hollywood were saying. And and some of them who worked with him said, we just thought it was that he was having lots of extramarital affairs. And we didn't think that it was this. We didn't think it was this kind of, you know, predatory quid pro quo sort of behavior with young women who were trying to make it in Hollywood. Um, and everybody kind of seems to agree that you can have an extramarital affair. And that's totally within the bounds of like human existence unless you're a values voter politician who's being a super hypocritical public figure. It's obviously worth figuring out what you really mean by dog, right? Like if it's something, is it just somebody who's sort of skeezy and that's not cool? Or if it's somebody who is in fact raping people, there's a big difference. So I don't feel like I've been restricted from reporting on anything. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard. Mm-hmm. to to get this kind of reporting. And obviously, you know, The New Yorker was working on this piece for 10 months and The Times for four.
3: I mean, you're obviously covering things that are oftentimes very big news. And I'm curious how much you ingest everything that's happening and sort of say either I can add to that mm-hmm. or I'm not going to touch that one because everyone's, like you mentioned, doing reporting on Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Like there's an argument for saying like there's more to be, ha- I mean, there's obviously like more women to come forward there's more details there's more to learn from this and then there's another approach to say uh well i don't want to cover this It's already been covered mm-hmm. as a sort of as a reporter looking yep. for scoops yep. and I'm, I'm wondering where you fall not just on the wine suit story but that is an example of a sort of wider approach to when you know this stuff is being covered all over the place
0: i definitely fall more on the the second half of that which is that there are, I don't know how many hot takes on Harvey Weinstein out there right now where people are sort of commenting on the story. I I think it's really important to know what happened um, and to kind of, to sort of report it out. And to the extent that you want to weigh in on something like this, if you don't have anything to add, I don't think it's particularly useful. I tend to want to kind of zig when other people are zagging and, and not because I just want to protect my own reporting but because I think I can actually really add something I, I think I'm a good enough reporter when I can that I could break something on somebody else there's no lack of stories you know we talked to started at the beginning of like talking about vanity fair and how you choose your stories and there's always an element of where you're going to be dive, sort of parachuting into something that someone has likely written about in to some degree you can't shy away from sort of going into something that's that's a crowded field but in general, I think that there's much more to add to create your own path of reporting as opposed to just kind of being an additive voice on something that's already out there. On the Harvey thing, I think it's worth. Um, there's a lot. It's it's also the other. Just to contradict myself, um, in the same we welcome in that the here. same breath. Um, you know, people think they know. It took us like a very very long time to understand what happened, for example, in the financial crisis. You think you know what the story is, and it's always worth sort of keeping at least half an eye on something because we don't know, we certainly don't know everything about what happened with with Harvey.
3: The other thing about the Weinstein thing is it just, it feels like, not that it all shouldn't have been reported, but like once the New Yorker story came out, like He's so bad, it's so over the top mm-hmm. that it's like you wonder if people can dismiss it as sort of like a crazy outlier as opposed to something exists along a spectrum. And in some ways, it's important important to recognize like the everydayness totally. aspect of it, which I suppose requires like reporting that out,
0: yeah. I mean, I think that that's always a danger um and this is a this is like a very broad reporting issue, and it came up in not to go like everywhere in in terms of this discussion, but I did a piece probably two years ago on the Rolling Stone rape story, Mm -hmm. which came out of the University of Virginia, which is where I went to school. And one of the things that was really, there are a million things about that story that were interesting, but one of the problems was that the reporter, Sabrina rubin Erdley was looking for a really interesting and explosive example of a campus rape. And she found it in Jackie, who created this like incredibly violent gang rape. And the concern that people had who were kind of helping her with that story, who I went back then to interview later, was that that was such an obvious and crazy, violent, horrific example of a rape that the people who are sort of like casually raped, which is the vast majority, that that would sort of distract people from wanting to come forward because they would think, oh, I wasn't raped by five guys. I was just raped by one person that I went on a date with, and then things kind of got crazy and out of hand, and I couldn't control the situation mm. anymore. I think that there's a, a, an analogy that you can make or a parallel that you can draw with the, with the Harvey thing, is that women who have come forward after these initial stories came out to talk about Harvey, they feel like they need to preface it by saying, I know he's done way worse, and I know that, that I'm not the worst example, but I'm just going to add my voice and I think that there is this real sense and a danger that if you have an egregious example, that it's a great journalistic example. But it's actually the reality is much more boring and still is damaging and and should be a paid attention to. But we're in this kind of attention economy where everybody's trying to get their voice out there. And so journalists are certainly complicit in that. You want to find a story that will resonate really broadly.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've mentioned UVA. uh, So let's go back a little bit and talk about how you developed these reporting skills. So I know that you started at Newsweek. I think you started at Newsweek?
0: Yeah, I was a news assistant at Newsweek. So
3: did you go straight from college to to that? How did that come about?
0: So I went to the University of Virginia and had decided I wanted to... I had a summer abroad in France, and I was from a small town in Pennsylvania, and I was just kind of blown away by how gorgeous it was. And it was just a spectacular, pretty obviously, Paris is not a bad place to go. But I was, um, I thought, well, I should just go live there after college, because I don't really have a job lined up here. I don't really have a job lined up there. um, So all things being equal, I should just try to move there. And um, I threw a couple of, you know, first jobs that we can cover in a different under a different <laughs> uh, rubric. Um I ended up being a, a applying for an internship, an unofficial, extremely unofficial and very unpaid back when that was still completely completely yeah. fine and no one was suing anyone or upset about it. Um I worked for Newsweek.
3: But in Paris. But
0: in Paris and it was right after Princess Diana died. And so it was who you later
3: this, wrote a Vanity Fair story about
0: who I later wrote it all comes together. Mm-hmm. yeah, okay. I did write, later write a Vanity Fair story about her but it was um, it was sort of a busy time in the Paris Bureau as those things go because a lot of times those international certainly pa- the Paris Bureau is often like a lot of culture stories and um, but this was like the white hot center of everybody's focus for a while was how did Princess Diana die So that's how I got my start at Newsweek. And then I went to the Wall Street Journal after
3: that. And what was your sort of beat at the Wall Street Journal before the media beat? Like what kind of stuff did you cover?
0: It was all different business beats. So when I was in London, I moved from Paris to London for the journal and lived there. And that was, I, I covered sort of advertising, the advertising industry. I covered alcohol, you know, booze companies. I covered tobacco companies. You know, it's one of those weird papers where, like, you don't go to Poughkeepsie to cover City Hall. You go to the Wall Street Journal to cover consumer products and toothpaste. <laughs> so I cut my teeth on um, one of my my big, you know, was it was writing about advertising, but then it was also writing about Procter and Gamble for a long time, which I. Will tell you it was like a really prestigious beat to have.
3: <laughs> well, it's so funny because I've partly wanted to ask. Is I had I was talking to Michael Barbaro uh, oh, yeah. for this podcast and he covered Walmart. And I remember something about those kind of like traditional newspaper beats, it seems like that really teach you like how to get inside something that sort of wants to let out news but only in its but, specific way, right? And you're trying to get around that, like that. There's something about that training, maybe.
0: Well, there's definitely something about, we used to talk about Procter & Gamble and also Walmart, that you were covering a country. Think of it as covering a country. Right. And there are different agencies, and there are different departments, and it's it's definitely got, you know, I mean, I don't know what, we, we never went so deep as to say, like, this person is really the Secretary of State. <laughs> um, but there is an element to, you've got a lot of people who work there, and you could think about it in that way, and it is beneficial to sort of understand would want to let it, some information out, there's certainly rivalries and it, inside and you can capitalize on those in some of the same ways.
3: So this brings me to a moment that I'm so interested in, which is the moment when you were assigned by the Wall Street Journal to write about Rupert Murdoch's takeover of the Wall Street Journal. Right. What did that feel like?
0: It felt like most things do when you're covering a newspaper beat. At a newspaper, which is just like, this is the story that you have to cover. And you're going to have to put out a bunch of stories on it today, tomorrow, the next day. You better get sourced up on it and sort of figure it out. So there was some of it that was kind of normal. There was some of it that was very abnormal because we were reporting on our bosses. And luckily, I was young enough that I didn't really know how dangerous that was or care that Hmm. much. It's like... uh... It's probably a character flaw in some deep way. But I um, there were also a lot of people who were supporting me. So, you know, we had a lot of people. I was certainly not the only person covering, but I was the main newspaper beat reporter. And in 2006 and 2007, that was actually like a... That was a big deal. It was a kind of a... I don't, I'm not saying it was a big deal in terms of my job, but it was like there was a lot to cover.
3: I'm saying it's a big deal. There
0: were a lot of newspapers. There were still... People cared about that world, and it was definitely like the... The moment where everybody knew that things were not going to be great in the news business, but it was before the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just remember somebody who was also reporting on this said that we were just like the tip of the spear. Like the entire in the entire paper was behind our effort to report on what was going to happen, and partly because they wanted to know just as much as we did. <laughs> I mean, it was the like news gr- consumers. In 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 the most fun part about it is that I got to do. As my job, what everybody in that paper wanted to do all day long, which was gossip about what was going to happen. And it was hugely fun in a way. I mean, I just remember I didn't eat dinner before nine o'clock or out of a Tupperware container for like three months while that deal was going on (laughs) because we were all just like constantly, it, it was really like the story of our lives at that point. I think it was really in retrospect, a really fun time. You left
3: and wrote a book about it. Yeah. And, I mean, th- you may have sort of answered this question already because you it's really you were reporting on your bosses more so than your colleagues. But I mm. i wondered how you were left with your colleagues in terms of reporting on the place where you had worked for 10 years. Right. actually made me think of Gay Talese, who I think worked at the Times for yeah, 10 yeah, years yeah. and then yeah, yeah, yeah. wrote the book about it. So did you end up with the same relationships or did did that factor into it or was you weren't really reporting on those people
0: well i was not reporting on kind of the rank and file people but there were definitely people who were ticked off that i was writing about what i was writing about and it divided people a little bit in terms of there were people who are still dear friends of mine from that period prior to that period and today um who were like work friends that i'm now are real friends but there were people who. I definitely fell out of touch with and who sort of didn't trust there was there was a little bit of an element of being kind of like internal affairs after a certain point (laughs) where i could sense sense that i would walk up to a conversation and people would be like okay anyway um you know so there was there that was uncomfortable and certainly there were people in the editing ranks i mean i just ran into somebody who was a former wall street journal editor Last week, and he said, "Yeah, you were really hated at a certain point." I was like, "Well, thanks for (laughs) telling me that." Um, It's good to know. Likewise, um, but the but yeah, so that I won't say that that wasn't that was fraught. It was definitely a fraught experience. In the process of writing it, I didn't get to go out to lots of colleagues and ask what their. I didn't have a lot of readers of that book who were my like former journal colleagues because they were so, either, they hated Rupert Murdoch or they resented the level of attention that he was being paid Mm -hmm. that nobody had an objective view of like do you think this sentence works in this way and they were like (laughs) not the right people to ask about that but it was a um no it was definitely a a kind of deal breaker for some people and i knew that
3: but you did get them to talk because uh, like i feel like a staple of this and then other later vanity fair media stories is, is that you've written is that you're just, like, in the room for these decisions where, like, literally people are across the table talking mm-hmm. about something. Mm-hmm. And I always think when I read those things, like, well, one, of, there's only three or four people in this room, as far as I can tell. Like, don't they all know? So they all talked or, or one of them talked? Right. Like, that seems like you, at some point, whether you were internal affairs, like, you were able to leverage that into getting that level of detail.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the goal. And I... I do think people like to be written about as much as many people say they don't like it. Because here we are, this was like, you think back, that was a deal that happened in 2007 for a newspaper. Um, these bankers do these deals all the time. Lawyers do these deals all the time. Rupert Murdoch buys a billion things, you know, in his lifetime. Here's somebody who's going to spend a lot of time thinking about you and how you did that very thing, Rupert Murdoch or you know, whoever else you want to focus on in that story. And it's sort of flattering, I think.
3: But it seems like there's a particular challenge when you move into covering, you know, you've written about CNN, Mm -hmm. you've written about, you know, the morning morning talk shows that when you're writing about these very powerful media institutions and people, a lot of them, what they do for a living is shape stories. Right. So how do you get around the problem of these people are potentially like masters of shaping their own story? They're Mm -hmm. not... Coming into them, they're ignorant of, like, how this story is going to get cold. They're very, very strategic. How do you sort of account for that in your reporting?
0: You know, the easiest way around that is just to try to talk to everybody on every side of something. Um, So there was this kind of absurd example of, because of reporting on Roger Ailes, one of the... I would say the highest-profile woman in that story was Megyn Kelly. Mm-hmm. And she came out with a story of her own sexual harassment at the hands of Roger Ailes 10 years ago, and she wanted to leave Fox. But where she was going to go work was a question, and it was a question that I was sort of reporting on for a time. And there is n- no place that is more vicious or spinny <laughs> I mean, maybe politics, but the television news world. you I remember how, I mean, it's just like people were spinning so much like, no, we're not interested in her. We're not interested in her either. We're not interested in her. And then there was examples of like, they you just had a meeting with her offering her millions of dollars to come and work there. Like, how can you say you're not interested? I don't understand. And <laughs> And I did say to somebody at a certain point, I remember being on the phone, being like, this is not Afghanistan. You could just tell me. If you're interested in hiring this person, I mean, come on, how important could that be? But they were exactly what you've just described. Like They were talking their own book in a way that would only benefit them and only detract from their rivals in such a transparent way. And it was hilarious at a certain point because I was just like, you people, I mean, you're lying.
3: Do you feel like it's it's interesting to write these sort of big media stories? Like you wrote a big story about what happened, what was going on at the Post before you know Bezos acquired it, right. and and Murdoch and the newspaper industry, right. and you know even like the New Republic and that mm-hmm. sort of that that sort of thing. So one question is: Are those stories all sort of stories that are are less less interesting? Mm-hmm. The inside accounts of them, and then the second part of it is like you work at a magazine that's at the center mm-hmm. of like we've had a lot of people on this podcast, you know, they're worried about magazines and some people will say magazines are in decline or you also cover the media. So how, how do you experience that? I guess is what I'm asking.
0: Um, Well, both my husband and I are journalists. So we feel like we've made a grave error in terms of like (laughs) career prospects. I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat. Oh, good. Well, we can all have, (laughs) uh, share cat food under a bridge one day, but I think that, that certainly the institutions have shifted. So, the story that I wrote on the New Republic—it's like the last moment that anybody was going to really care about what happened at the New Republic, and the only reason anybody cared was because there was a Silicon Valley guy who had tried to make it into something and failed. What I will say, though, about media—and is if the institutions—if the institutions change, the motivations are the same. Mm-hmm. You know, Facebook is an advertising company basically, and they are fighting for a slice of human attention in the same way that newspapers were 10, 15, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. And it was the monopoly position of newspapers that gave them their power. And you can look at, you know, the technology is different, but the people and their motivations and the way that we think about them are the same. And so I would say that I think about Facebook as a media company. um, And the... Certainly now, with all the attention that we're giving, what those companies, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, their role in the election, they're occupying much more of a position, much more of the same kind of position as of a, of a media company than they are of a tech company. I mean, the technology operates in a certain way, and it's interesting to know how that happens. Um, but I actually think that the, the that covering those kinds of institutions, whether it was the New York Times at a certain point or Facebook today, it's kind of the same It's the same mechanism and it's the same way of thinking about them. And I approach it that way. So the institutions that I'm less interested in now are the ones that were big 50 years ago. But I still um, think that the kind of reporting is super valuable and interesting to me. But
3: you're still employed by the institutions that were big 50 years ago.
0: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for pointing that out. (laughs) I appreciate it.
3: And the, the institutions like Facebook do, doesn't... I mean, Facebook explicitly does not want to be perceived as a media company precisely because they don't want... All this They don't want the kind of scrutiny and responsibility... They don't want to have to take to... That you're yeah. talking about.
0: Yes. And where my next paycheck comes from is certainly a very interesting question for me. But I don't think... I do think that someone is going to want people who can ferret out information and tell great stories. Um, and I think that that's what the Facebooks of the world and, and like people monetizing, quote unquote, which is a word that I really don't love, people monetizing people's attention is continually changing. But I am not reporting on what's happening at Vanity Fair or Condé Nast. I've right. done that <laughs> once before at the Wall Street Journal. It was really fun. Really fun to do it once. Wouldn't want to do it again. Um, <laughs> You're not so, going to leave Vanity Fair so and not, write a book. Exactly. No, that is. I can definitively, definitively say.
3: Sarah, thank you for coming on the
0: podcast. Thank you for having me.
3: That's it for this week's long form podcast. I'm your co-host Evan Ratliff. Thank you very much to Sarah Ellison for coming in this week. Thank you, as always, to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and our editor this week, Courtney Harrell, as well as our intern, Angela Velez. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp, Quip, and BarkBox. We will see you next week.
1: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it.